Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Well, a uh, very warm welcome to you today to St. George's on uh, this first Sunday after Epiphany. And today uh, we hear St. Luke's account of the baptism of our Lord. And appropriately, um, um, at Calvary today, we're going to have actually three baptisms, three little babies. And um, I'm extremely excited about that because all three of the uh, families being baptized are involved in the life and the ministry of the parish. And uh, there's all sorts of things I'm really excited about, Chelsea, and all sorts of things planned for the 2019 year for children all the way um, up up till they graduate. So we're looking forward to that. But in the third chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, we are introduced to this mysterious voice of a man crying out in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist's prophetic ministry functions like that of an Old Testament prophet in two ways. The first thing that he does is that he calls the people to repentance. And then the second thing that he does is he drives the people, through that call to repent, he drives the people to the Messiah. And his preaching on the banks of the Jordan River created such an electricity of expectancy that the people listening, Luke tells us, began to confuse John and wonder if he was the Messiah himself. It said all the people began to wonder in their heart whether John might be the Messiah. And so in order to clear up the confusion, John expresses the superiority of the ministry of the Messiah over and above him in two very specific ways. The first thing that John does is he says, I am not worthy to untie the sandals from his feet. Now, this would have been a very powerful illustration to everybody listening on the banks of the Jordan because to untie a person's sandals was actually the work of a slave. And John is saying, my ministry is so minuscule compared to that of the Messiah that um, I'm not even worthy to be considered the Messiah's slave. Isn't that interesting? Such a gulf between the two. And this is because second... John expresses the difference in their baptisms. He expresses the difference in their ministries. Remember, as an Old Testament prophet, as a prophet, he's to call the people to repentance and drive them to the Messiah. But the Messiah that he's driving them to is a little scary. John tells the crowd that he will baptize with water, but the Messiah will baptize with Holy Spirit and and fire. And John's baptism, if you remember, as I just said, is a baptism of repentance. Now, this kind of baptism was not unusual in Judaism in those days. There is evidence that the community of Qumran, these are the people that put together the Dead Sea Scrolls that you always see on the Discovery Channel, they had a baptism of repentance to enter into their community. Uh, Judaism in the first century, a lot of Gentiles were uh, joining Judaism, and uh, they would become what was known as God-fearers, and they had to be baptized, and in this baptism, this enabled them, this baptism of repentance enabled them to enter into the court of the Gentiles, which was in the temple. And so essentially what John is saying is is that our ministries are different. John's baptism was a confession. John's baptism is a confession that I am a poor, miserable sinner, 
and I need to and I want to clean up my act. The difference in the Messiah's baptism is that it comes with fire and the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever you see the word fire there, um, this is a sign, especially when connected to the Old Testament, is a symbol of God's judgment. So John is saying the Messiah's baptism is actually apocalyptic in nature. It's going to represent on a profound level the end, and it's going to come with God's permanent judgment. I can already feel my back getting up, in the, getting up you know? He says, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff, the chaff shall burn with unquenchable fire. This is my first point. John here, John the Baptist on the bank of the Jordan, distinguishes himself from the Messiah by describing the Messiah the one in whom, by describing the Messiah as the one in whom God has placed ultimate authority, as our ultimate judge, and whose judgment will be swift, it will be just, and it will be permanent. Ah, oh, I can feel my back getting up. And that's because uh, when, and I don't know, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me, but when we hear the word judge, in our don't judge me culture, and for the record, I think we live in one of the most judgy and unforgiving cultures and societies in the history of humanity right now. Everybody's a victim, and everybody's playing the scapegoat, and uh, you know everything is permissible, but nothing is forgiven. Nothing is forgiven. So, but in our no judgment culture, it gets my back up. I've talked with hundreds of people as a minister, and we're completely fine, and I'm completely fine too, with Jesus as a teacher. I'm completely fine with Jesus as a wonderful moral example. I used to wear a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy, and I am completely fine with that image, you know, him as a DJ. And, uh, you know, I'm completely fine with that. I'm comfortable with it, but Jesus is my judge. That's another thing altogether, isn't it? Isn't it? But this is what John is saying. He's a judge. And uh, John is highlighting one of the three roles of the Messiah. The Messiah had to play three roles. Prophet, priest, and king. And in his priestly ministry, and in his kingly ministry, he is a judge. So, but then this got me asking a question, and it got me asking a question for a long time. If Jesus is our judge, then why on earth does he need to partake in a baptism of repentance? You know, this confused me for a long time when I was studying theology. And I wondered to myself all the time, if Jesus is this sinless judge, why did he need to be baptized with the baptism of repentance? What's he doing getting in that water? Well, if you've ever pondered this question, you are in very good company. Maybe you're pondering it right now. Because John the Baptist ponders this very question. Now here's the thing that you need to understand in order to know what's going on here, especially with Jesus as our judge. is The baptism of Jesus is the only event recorded along with the crucifixion and the resurrection and ascension. It's the only event recorded in all four Gospels. 
And this is because like the crucifixion and the resurrection, the gospel writers want to grab your attention. The gospel writers are telling you, do not miss what's happening here because something profound and something extremely comforting about this judge is being conveyed. It is almost as if they are crying out across time, don't miss this. What's happening in this baptism is extremely important. And in order to really grasp it, we look at St. Matthew's Gospel and his account of John the baptism. And literally, as Jesus is walking up on the banks of the Jordan River, John sees him, and then John sees Jesus getting into the water and submits himself to be baptized by John, and John goes, whoa, 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 you know, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus looks at John and he says, let it be so for now that we might fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, this tells you everything, because Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus, who is our judge, in this moment is fulfilling all righteousness. What is happening in the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of it. Jesus is not undertaking baptism for the sake of his own sin. He was sinless. Instead, the sinless and perfect judge. I love how St. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. Although in the form of God did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. And so here you have Jesus, the judge, and he is the sinless, perfect judge, the Messiah, and he is freely identifying with sinful and imperfect humanity in every way possible. He is identifying with humanity in every way possible in his incarnation because we need a substitute. In this moment, in this baptism, In fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus is making it perfectly clear that he is the judge who will be judged on our behalf. In this scene, we are being shown that Jesus is our substitute in every way. And this is very important because the need for a substitute speaks to the very center of each and every one of us. Because who here among us has not longed for a substitute at least once in your life? Just think back to that first awkward junior high dance and how you wish you could have been someone else. Am I the only one? Anyway, (laughs) but maybe for you, you've experienced that longing for a substitute when you were laying in bed thinking about your entire life at 2 a.m. Maybe for you, you've been longing for a substitute when you look at that pile of bills up on your desk, or maybe when you think about your medical issues. Maybe for you, it's when you're sitting at work and you find these thoughts racing through your mind. If only I would have done this, then things would have been different. If only I would have done that and that, who knows what would have happened. 
And when you find yourself, and it's always in the mind oftentimes, when you find yourself saying those if-then statements, you there are discovering that you are longing on a profound level for a substitute. And this is my second point. It was not necessary for Jesus to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. However, for us, it was completely necessary so that as our substitute, all righteousness, all of your longing might be fulfilled on your behalf. Jesus' death for you, this is important. This is how death, the atonement, and the incarnation are connected. There's a lot of people out there that want to separate the two of them, and it's terrible theology. Terrible theology. The two are interconnected. Jesus' death for you, his atonement for you, enables you to stand before God justified. But Jesus' perfect life for you, which fulfilled all righteousness, enables you to stand and be declared by God righteous. If Jesus hadn't lived, there'd be no way to declare you righteous. But the two, the incarnation and the atonement, go hand in hand, and in the baptism we see that they're connected. So that in Jesus, all of your if-then situations and dilemmas are sufficiently answered for you in the substitute Jesus. For the judgment of the whole world fell upon him in order to make you the chaff so heavy with his righteousness that you have literally become the wheat now in this church gathered in the granary. And in a moment, we're going to gather around this table and we're going to bring all of those if-then situations. And you are going to hear Jim say, the body of Christ broken for you. You're going to hear our chalice bearer say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you will be reminded that because Jesus has entered into your life, when you were baptized, you were plunged into his. And now you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Well, Jake, you don't know what happened to me last week. Jake, you don't know what I was thinking about last night. It doesn't matter because God's word will have the final say over you. And this is my third point, and never forget it. Jesus is our judge who is judged for us. And Jesus' baptism is good news because it is the first epiphany that illustrates that when judge and substitute are held together, you have a clear picture of Jesus in his full ministry as your Savior. And because he's entered into our life, and because we have been pulled into his by his grace and plunged into those waters, indeed, that same herald, because he is your righteousness and he is your justification, because of Jesus, those same powerful words are spoken over you. And you move from an if-then perspective and an if-then paradigm to a therefore-because paradigm. So therefore, or because therefore paradigm, and because Jesus has lived for you, because Jesus has been crucified for you, 
and because Jesus has been risen for you. Right now, because, therefore, your heavenly Father is well pleased with you. And you are his son, and you are his daughter, and nothing can take that away. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.